couple weeks ago, uh, went on a retreat to Lake Tahoe with the young adults, and uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful time, and we went over a series of three messages, and so tonight you're going to hear those three sermons put together into one. So please turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 24 while I pray. Father, your word says that the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And so tonight I pray that as the word is preached, that, that it would go out with power and a demonstration of the Holy Spirit working in the hearts and the lives of your people. We've come together to hear from you. We've come together to, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you would make that happen tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, the theme of our retreats and the theme of our message tonight is hearts burning for Jesus. I mean, Jesus Christ, he is alive. He is risen from the dead. And so what, is, what else is there worth living for? But I think if we're honest with ourselves and if we're honest with God's, we could say that there are times, there are, there are seasons in our lives where our hearts really aren't on fire for God. We believe in Him, but we're not in the Word like we used to be. There's no diligence in prayer. There's no excitement. There's no passion. There's no urgency to tell people about Him. Our hearts are like this fire that once was. It's, it's gone out. And all that is left is the, the glowing embers and the smoke that is ascending up, but there is no flame. And so the question is, how do we become Christians who are on fire for our Savior? How do we become serious, zealous, passionate, devoted followers of Jesus Christ? Well, that is my prayer, and that is our purpose here tonight, that not only will we discover how this happens, but that we will discover it happening to us. And so first thing we're going to do is we're going to examine the walk of two disciples. And we're going to see that they're, in, they're not in a very good place. And that's because they're not turning to God's word when they need it most. And then we're going to see how Jesus ministers to them. He uses his word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, 17. And then we're going to see, finally, the impact God's word has on our heart. It leaves our hearts burning for him and longing for more of him. So Luke chapter 20, 24, and we're going to look first at verses 13 through 26. So the word of God. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. And one of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. 
He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, How foolish you are and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory. And so our first point for tonight that we're going to talk about is the road that we all travel. Now the moment that you were saved, the moment you gave your life to Jesus Christ, the moment you were born again and God's Holy Spirit came to live in your heart, you began a walk of faith with Jesus. A walk of faith with him day by day moment by moment, down the straight and narrow path until that day that we enter through the gates of death into his eternal kingdom where we will see him face to face. Now sometimes on our journey we fall down and sometimes we take a wrong turn. And that's the case for these two guys here today. They have a faith issue. You see, the day is Resurrection Sunday. It's the greatest And the most glorious day in human history, the Son of God has risen from the dead. He is alive. But these guys, they don't realize that. For them, it's the saddest day in human history. This man in whom they'd come to believe in, and whom they had followed for perhaps three and a half years, was now dead. And when he was buried, so too was their hope. And so too was their faith, all because they were not trusting, they were not looking to God's word, which foretold all of the events that had taken place there that weekend. And so the root cause of why they're sad, the root cause of why they're depressed, the root cause of why Christians have no joy, or why they live defeated Christian lives, and why they have no fire is they're not trusting and they're not turning to God's word for answers when they need it most. God's word has answers for every single thing that we face in this life. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But if we as Christians don't turn to God's word, if we don't trust in God's word, if we don't apply God's word to our life, then our walk is going to end up being sad and depressing and powerless and defeated, and we're going to have no fire when really there's no reason for it whatsoever. And so... These two guys, they're on a walk. It's a seven-mile walk. It would take about two hours on average. And they get some unexpected company. It's Jesus. 
He comes up because he's going to minister to them. But the Bible here says that they do not recognize that the man who is walking beside them is none other than the Son of God. They think that he is a visitor that has come to Jerusalem for the annual Passover celebration. The Holy Spirit highlights for us that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. In other words, this is a supernatural work of God. He is preventing their eyes from being able to see that this man is Jesus. You see, God wants their faith, and God wants my faith, and God wants our faith to rest not on what we see with our eyes, but rather on his word. We walk by faith and not by sight, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. You see, if they had seen Jesus, if he had just come up to them and say, hey guys, it's me, I'm risen from the dead, look at my hands, look at my sight, of course they would have believed. But God wants them to have a strong and a sure foundation, and that is found in his word, the Holy Bible. Now this is important for us, because we live 2,000 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I am not an eyewitness You are not an eyewitness. I was not there when the stone was rolled away. I didn't see the vision of angels. I wasn't in the upper room when Jesus came in and showed himself to the disciples. I've never even been to Israel, okay? All that I have is God's word. My eyes have been kept, if you would, just like theirs, But I have the same privilege and you have the same privilege that these gentlemen had. Although we can't see him, we can hear him. God is speaking to them and God is speaking to to us through his word. So let's look at their conversation. Jesus says, hey guys, uh, what are you discussing? I heard you talking something about a Messiah that you had hoped in. You believed that he was going to redeem Israel, but he was crucified. I mean, what's... what are you talking about? And this, this shocks them. It causes them to stop in their tracks. He looks down at the ground, he shakes his head and looks up at Jesus and says, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who hasn't heard the things that have taken place here these days? In other words, it was no secret. Everybody knew what happened to Jesus. Jesus was famous in that area. He healed people, he cast out demons, he transformed lives. Everybody knew about Jesus, and everybody knew that that weekend he was put to death. Everybody from the highest government official, Pilate and Herod, down to the peasant knew what happened. And so why? Why is Jesus asking these questions? Why does he say, what things? Why is he saying that? I mean, he knew what happened that weekend. Those things are the things that happened to him. He was the one who was nailed to that cross. He was the one who was rejected. He was the one who was forsaken. And so why is he asking these questions? Well, I believe it's because he knows their issue. And he wants them to share their problems with him so that he can then Minister to them. 
You see, the last thing we want to do when we have a problem in our life is keep it in. We need to bring our problems, bring our anxieties, bring our cares before God so that he can minister to us. And so they begin to share with Jesus. They said, hey, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, mighty in word. The things that he said spoke like no man ever spoke before. The things that he did, he walked on water. He raised the dead. I mean, he was mighty in word and and mighty in deed, but, but our chief priests and our rulers, they took him, the people that were supposed to lead us to God, they took the one who came from God and they had him delivered over to death and he was crucified. You see, we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem us, that he was going to redeem Israel, but that hope is lost now. Some people told us that he was alive, but we sent some of our friends there to check. They didn't find a body. They were devastated. They were ruined. And and so Jesus now is going to correct them. He's going to rebuke them. He says, how foolish you are, how simple you are, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer and then enter into his glory? So here, Jesus puts his finger on the heart of the matter. You see, their issue is a faith issue in believing what the Bible had to say about the suffering of the Messiah. You see, in their mind. It didn't make any sense. Why did Jesus die? He was the Messiah. The Messiah was supposed to come in and have this everlasting kingdom. Israel was going to be exalted to chief among the nations. They were going to topple Rome, expel Rome, but it went the other way. Rome got the best of Jesus. Rome toppled Jesus, and so it didn't make any sense to them. It didn't make any sense to them. So what we have here is two people who do not understand why Jesus died. They don't understand the cross. And because they don't understand the cross, they can't embrace the reality that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and the evidence, their walk showed it. You see, the way you walk with God, the way you live out your Christian life demonstrates how much you truly understand what Jesus Christ did for you on that cross. The way you walk with God demonstrates how much you truly believe the reality that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. You see, if I truly understand that cross and and what Jesus did there for me, that on that cross, when, when Jesus was hanging and bleeding and gasping for air, that on that cross is where my forgiveness was obtained. If I truly understand the cross, that, that what happened to my Savior up on that cross is what I deserve. I'm the one who is guilty of committing sins. 
I am the one who deserves the wrath of God. Yet Jesus was up there taking my place. If I truly understand that, then out of that understanding should be birthed a deep love for my Savior, a deep appreciation for my Savior, and a deep devotion to Him. You see, if I truly believe that Jesus Christ is alive, then shouldn't my life show it? Shouldn't the way I live demonstrate that I believe that? 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5 says that we should examine ourselves. Ask yourself these tough questions. Does the way I live say that I understand the cross? Is the way I'm living today evidence that I believe the reality that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that he is alive and that there's nothing else worth living for? Or does the way I am living today say something completely different? Does it say that I've never given my heart to Jesus Christ at all? Or does it say perhaps that that I have given my life to him, but I have forgotten how great a salvation that I have received? If you have lost your fire for God, then you need to go to the cross. The cross is a powerful place because it's there at the cross when we remember the cross. This is why Jesus, I think, has us take communion often because when we go to the cross and we reflect on what took place there, when we see that, that the Savior was dying for the sins of the world, that that's what sin did to my Savior, it's inspirational. It makes me want to avoid sin. It makes me want to put sin to death in my life. When I go to the cross, I see the the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of my Savior. I see His amazing grace, that unmerited, undeserved favor. I don't deserve salvation, but He was willing to do that for me. I see the mercy of God. God not giving me what I deserve. It, it does something to you. And so if you've lost that fire, visit the cross. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to do with these guys. He's going to take them through the word and he's going to show them the cross. And that's verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning Himself, And so our second point is the ministry of the word. So here, Jesus is going to give the greatest Bible study lesson ever given. <laughs> what you guys are going to hear tonight is nothing compared. I mean, it's not even, yeah, okay, so, sorry. Um, before uh, the incarnation, before the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God, ever clothed himself in a human body and stepped through the virgin womb of Mary before God ever became a man. The entire story of redemption was recorded there for us in the Old Testament. And so what Jesus is going to do, he's going to take these guys from the book of Genesis 
all the way through the book of Malachi, and he's going to point out these shadows of redemption, these, these illustrations, these representations, these verses and Bible stories that show us the cross before it ever happened. And as these guys begin to understand what the Bible has been saying since the beginning that God loves us, and the evidence is that he's going to come to die for us, as they begin to understand that, what happens is they catch fire for the Lord. And so I believe one of the places, and there are many places in the Old Testament that talk about the cross, but I believe one of the places that Jesus would have taken them is to Passover week. It makes sense to me because in this story it is Passover week. And so just to be refreshed and reminded of what took place during Passover week, uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. So Passover week was eight days long. There was three holy days celebrated. You had Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of first fruits. These were very, very important to the Jews. They had been celebrating these holy days for some 1,500 years. Kind of like our Christmas or our Easter. You couldn't imagine life without it. That big to them. And so the Feast of Passover, you can read about it in Exodus chapter 12. It happened on the 14th day during the month of Abib. And God says there, this month is to be for you the first month of your year. And so Passover month marked a new beginning for the Jews, a new life. You see, they had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, cruel bondage. But God was going now, this very night, he was going to set them free. And so what they were called to do by God was take a male lamb or a male goat. It had to be one year old, and it had to be without defect. It couldn't be sick. It couldn't have any diseases, and it could not be injured. And they needed to choose this animal in advance. It needed to be chosen on the 10th day of that month. Excuse me. They needed to know exactly what lamb was going to die for them. And so once they had the lamb... On that day, the 14th day, at a very specific time, twilight, which would be around 3 o'clock, this animal was put to death. And then they were to paint the blood of that lamb on the top of their doorposts and on the side of their doorposts. And then after that, they were to go in their house and they were to feast upon that lamb. And then as God came through Egypt that night to judge that nation and to strike down the firstborn, When he came to a house where the blood was applied, he would pass over and they would be saved. And so the Feast of Passover really commemorates God's grace in that way. And then we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which you can read about in Leviticus chapter 23. It happened on the very next day, so the 15th day during the month of Abib, and it was seven days long, and they were to remove all yeast from their house, And there was a big church service on the first day of that celebration and on the last day of that celebration. And all week long, they were to eat bread without yeast or without leaven, and it was called the bread of affliction, probably because of the flavor, okay? And so that's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then we have the Feast of Firstfruits, which you can read about in Leviticus chapter 23, and that happened on Sunday following the kickoff of Unleavened Bread. 
And so if unleavened bread fell on Thursday, then that Sunday would be the Feast of first fruits, And it marked the beginning of the barley harvest. And so what they were called to do was take the first, to take a bundle of the first grain that ripened, and they were to wave it before God. They were acknowledging that God, this harvest wouldn't happen without you. And it's because of you that this happens. And they could not partake of the harvest until they had done this. And that one bundle, that first fruits, represented to them the beginning of a great harvest. And so that's a reminder of what those holy days are about. Now Jesus is going to show them, I believe, that these holy days spoke of him. You remember John the Baptist. Remember when John the Baptist pointed to Jesus, what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This was three and a half years before Jesus Christ went to the cross. And so the Lamb of God was chosen in advance. Everybody knew this was the Lamb that was going to be our Passover. And Jesus, of course, was without blemish. He was without defect. He was without sin, standing before Pilate. Pilate tried to find a reason, tried to find some crime that Jesus was guilty of. But three times he said, I find no fault in this man. And then on Passover day, At that very specific time, twilight, the same time the Passover lambs were put to death, that's exactly when Jesus Christ died. Even the way that the Jews applied the blood to the doorposts of their house reminds us of the cross. As they painted the blood on the top of the doorpost, that reminds us of the blood that came out of Jesus' head and rested on the top of the cross. As they painted the blood on the side of the doorpost that reminds us of the blood that came out of his wrist as it was nailed to this side of the cross. And as they painted the other side of the doorpost, it reminds us of his other wrist nailed there. And no doubt, blood dripping to the ground reminds us that the blood came out of his feet as they were nailed there to that cross. And then what did the Jews do? After they applied that blood, they feasted upon the lamb, and that's what we do. After we give our hearts to Jesus Christ and his blood is applied to our life, to our account, what do we spend the rest of our Christian walk doing? Feasting upon Jesus, enjoying him forevermore. Now, the, un, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the bread of affliction, you remember? Who did Jesus say he was? He said, I am the bread of of God who has come down from heaven. Jesus was the sinless, the unleavened bread of God who was afflicted so that all leaven, so that all sin could be removed from our lives. So that when God looks at you and when God looks at me, he doesn't see anything. He says, unleavened, sinless, you're holy, you're coming to heaven, incredible. And then the, the feast of first fruits speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20 says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now remember that harvest couldn't happen until that first 
bundle had been uh, presented to God. And then once that bundle was presented, it marked the beginning of a great harvest. And that's exactly how it is with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Unless he had raised himself from the dead, no one else could be raised from the dead. But because Jesus Christ lives, because he has been raised from the dead, that is a guarantee that you and I and all who put their trust in him will to rise to new life. So incredible. Now, Psalm 22 is fascinating to me. So if you want to hold your finger right here and flip to Psalm 22 with me quickly, you don't have to. This psalm was written a thousand years Uh, before Jesus walked on this earth, written by King David. But when we look at all of the amazing details in this psalm, it gives us conclusive evidence that this is a prophetic picture of the cross, a prophetic picture of what Jesus Christ went through for us. Look at verse 1. The psalmist writes, My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Ring a bell? Those are the very words that Jesus cried out from the cross shortly before he died. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then look at verse 16. It says, dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. A clear picture of crucifixion, the hands and the feet being pierced. You want to know what's fascinating? This was written 500 years before crucifixion was even invented, right there in our Bible. And then really amazing to me is verse 6. He says, but I am a worm and not a man scorned by men and despised by the people. Now that word for worm, the the Hebrew is toloth, and it means crimson worm. It's a real worm. It's the, and I'm going to slaughter this, the the cocos ileus, okay? Uh, They use this worm to make the crimson dye for the curtains in the tabernacle, okay? Now this worm is fascinating, Uh, This worm only has babies one time in its life, okay? And when it's ready to give birth to to these babies, what it does is it finds a tree, a stick or a, a fence post or a stump or something, and it fastens itself to this tree. And then it lays its babies underneath this protective shell. And then the babies feast upon the body of the mother, And then when the babies are are ready to go out on their own, the mother dies and releases this crimson dye which stains the babies for life. And then after three days, the mom's body dries out and turns into this white wax and then falls to the ground like snow. Sound familiar? That's the gospel message right there wrapped up in the life and death of an insect. (laughs) Incredible. You see, Jesus wanting to bring life into this world, wanting to give us eternal life. He came and he fastened himself to a tree. His blood was shed so that now, though our sins were as scarlet, they can be white as snow. Incredible. 
incredible. So the Bible is just littered with amazing pictures like that. So Jesus has proved biblically and beyond a shadow of a doubt the necessity of the cross. And these guys, they understand that. And so now the fruit of that is going to be their heart is changed and their life is changed. They are going to be on fire for Jesus. And that's our final point, what a heart on fire looks like. And that's verses 28 and 29. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. So the first thing that we will see in a person who's on fire for the Lord is that they desire to spend time with Jesus. You see, Jesus is not going to force his way into your life. He's not rude. He doesn't say to these guys, I'm coming over and there's nothing you can do about it. I'm coming into your life. That is not the Lord. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10 says he stands at the door and he knocks. He wants to spend time with you. He loves you. But you have got to want to spend time with him. God wants a two-sided relationship because a one-sided relationship never, ever works. Now notice in our text that Jesus didn't have to force his way into these guys' lives. They urged Jesus to stay. Even though they didn't know that it was Jesus, even though their eyes didn't recognize that the person standing right there was none other than the Son of God, their hearts recognized it. Incredible. So there was just something about him, something about the way that he was, something about the way that he spoke that made these guys just want to spend time with him. Now notice what happens in verses 30 and 31 when we take time out of our lives to spend with Jesus. It says, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. So here they are, they're sitting at the table, they're enjoying one another's company, and they're about to have a meal together. They're about to sup together, okay? And then Jesus goes to bless the food, and then bingo, that's when they realized Jesus is sitting at the table with us. An incredible revelation. Was it when he lifted up his hands and the robe slid down his forearm and they saw the hole in his wrist? Or was it because God supernaturally just opened their eyes? I do not know. But I do know this, that when you spend time in God's word and you set apart time to spend with Jesus, that he is going to reveal himself to you. And that's one of his promises in John chapter 14 and verse 21. He says, He who keeps my commandments is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I myself will also love him and show myself to him. And so Jesus promises to reveal himself to us. Does this mean that he's going to show up and we're going to see him with our eyes? We're going to see him physically? No. It means that he is going to let us know that he is with us. 
He is going to let us know that I am with you, Jim. I am with you wherever you go. As you open up his word, he's going to let you know that he is there. He's going to speak to you. He has a way of doing that, doesn't he? A way of letting us know that he is near. In a worship service, as as you're lifting up your hands and you sense his presence, I can't tell you how many times in this very room, worshiping Jesus, lifting up my hands to God, And it felt as though he was walking right up to me and placing his hands on my hands and saying, Jim, I am with you. So as we get in God's word, as we spend time with Jesus, he's going to be revealing himself to us, letting us know by his spirit that he is there. And when these things are happening, something's going to happen to us. We're going to get this fire that's going to start to be birthed in our heart. We're going to get excited about our faith. And that's verses 32 through 34. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And then they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. And there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. So remember, it's nearly dark now, and they spent the, the past few hours walking all the way to Emmaus. But they've also spent the, fa- the past few hours in the Word of God. They spent the past few hours with Jesus, and He has revealed Himself to them. And all of that now has caused them to get up, to turn around, and to go back where they started, okay? You see, when you begin to get in God's word and spend time with him and he starts revealing himself to you, your life is going to do a 180. Your life can be completely turned around. It's incredible. Now, have you ever been around a Christian who has no fire, who has no passion, for Jesus. Oh, Jesus, yeah, I believe in him. He died for my sins, passed the salsa. You ever been around a Christian like that? It's a bummer, but it can happen to any one of us. I'm sure we've all had a season like that. I don't want that to be how I am identified by you guys. I don't want to be known as a Christian who has no passion and no fire for his Savior. Do you remember the early days when you first got saved, when you first heard about Jesus and you gave your life to him? Wasn't there this passion? Wasn't there this fire? I remember I went to Calvary Chapel, Petaluma, awesome church, and I went to church on Sundays, Sunday nights, uh, men's Bible study, midweek service. I was at the prayer meeting And then they had devotions at Mark Farrar's house. I think it was on Tuesdays and Friday mornings at 6.30. And I was just so excited about my faith. I just wanted to be wherever Jesus was going to be. I know that he had a special promise where two or three are gathered together. He was going to be there in a special way, so I wanted to be there. And so Mark Farrar, 6.30 in the morning, I lived a couple miles away. And I had a bike. I didn't have a car at that time. I just wanted to be there so bad. It didn't matter if it was cold, if it was hot, if it was raining. I was going to be there because I was passionate and excited about my faith. It inspired me, okay? 
See, I believe that that kind of fire and that kind of passion can be maintained all throughout your Christian life. And I believe that if you have lost that fire, that it can be regained. But we must do our part. We must get in the word. We must spend time with our Savior. Now, if once we get on fire for the Lord and get excited about our faith, something incredible happens. We begin to proclaim the gospel. And that's our final little point here, verse 35. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So they run all the way back and they tell everybody in the room the good news. Jesus Christ really is alive. He died for our sins. They want the whole world to know. I want to end with a story of a lady. Uh, she She is and she was a believer for many, many years. And there was a season in her life where uh, things were tough. The fire had kind of died out. She was going to a fellowship where uh, the preacher, in her own words, was as dead as a doorknob. And it impacted her life. And so she made a decision. She was going to switch churches. And so she found a nice little church there in Pacifica, California called Coastside Community Church. And there at that church, they were preaching the word of God. And she was encouraged to get into the word of God. And she was encouraged to spend time with Jesus. And as she began to do this, something began to happen to her. Her life changed. She rededicated her life to the Lord. She got on fire. She got excited about her faith. And then one night, she got a phone call from a young man. And he was sharing with her the things that were going on in his life. His life uh, was over. It was destroyed. He had made horrible decisions. He had no reason for living anymore. And she read him a Bible verse. She read him Isaiah chapter 43, verses 18 and 19. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. And this young man said to her, that's what I need for my life. And then my precious grandmother, who's sitting in the back there, said to me on that telephone, Jimmy, do you want to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? And I said, yes. You see, because my grandmother took her faith seriously, because she got in the word of God, because she began to spend time with Jesus and Jesus was revealing himself to her, she got excited, she got a fire and she became passionate and she proclaimed the gospel to me. And that is the reason why I am here today. And that is the reason why I am going to heaven. You see, getting on fire for Jesus isn't just about you. It impacts everybody around you. We need to take this serious. And so let's be a people who get in the word. Let's be a people who pray, God, help me to be a person who understands the cross and lives my life in line with the reality that you are alive. And help me be a Christian 
who is excited about my faith. Amen?